The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see you tonight. And a big welcome for anybody who's new here for the first time. It's, I think, useful just to acknowledge that it's not necessarily easy to walk into a place like Common Ground. And just want to welcome you and uh, introduce Gene Fagostrom, who's our program host in the corner. Feel free to connect with me or Gene afterward if you want to, if you have any questions or just learn a little bit more about the center or just say hi. And uh, we've been taking some time since September and just looking at some of the basic practices involved in our meditation practice. And of course, the Buddhist teachings are much wider and deeper than just formal sitting practice. But there's some really important things we learn. There's something about a human being, you know, that just as any creature, you were an animal, a creature like all the others, and we tend to have a very external orientation because we're concerned about predators and about getting our next meal and about reproducing and all these sort of things that creatures are concerned about. So there's something kind of unusual about a human animal sitting down and being relatively still and closing our eyes, right, which just puts us, makes us vulnerable in a way. It's kind of a in your face to the survival instinct, right, which usually demands some action, looking for food, looking for a mate, looking for shelter, or whatever it might be. But just to sit down and to temporarily, you know, for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you're able to put aside for your formal sitting practice, to put down all of that doing. And even though you might sit down and outwardly look pretty serene and still and peaceful. Could be all kinds of raging going on on the inside. <laughs> you know, only you will know. But it's a start just to sit down and to hold the body relatively still. And no matter what the impulse in the body and mind might be to bolt, to fix, to plan, you know, we put it down. comes back, we put it down. We keep ag- acknowledging what's happening in the body and the mind, but we're taking the stance of turning inward. right? So it's a particular practice, and I mentioned last week, if you weren't around, and really talked about this practice of seclusion. Right? It's a particular training we pick up where we're learning that the mind that's so designed to deal with the issues of survival, that for this period of time it doesn't need to do that. And I think it's really useful to distinguish that normal activity. In Buddhism we might call that worldly activity. That it's really the concerns or it's the activities of our mind and body that come out of greed, and fear, aversion. And not to, I'm not making those things bad, 
greed and aversion. But they are stressful. You know, when our when my mind is operating out of greed and aversion, there's a certain tightness there. Clearly, if like we're really angry, there's no doubt. But even a little bit of anger comes with mental and physical tension, or a little bit of greed, let alone when we're you know filled with lust or filled with desire. It's a stressful way of being. So that's what we mean by worldly. You know, it's really this attitude of doing. If only, then I'll be happy. If only, and you fill in the blank, I'll be happy. If only I get my body together, healthy. Like I, you can probably tell I have a cold. It's getting better. But if only, you know, back when I'm really healthy, then I'll be happy. Or like, oh, when I get my house, my home, my apartment together, then I'll be happy. When I finally fix my partner, then I'll be happy. Or find a partner, find a new partner, find a new cat, you know, (laughs) with a better cat. Or whatever it might be, fix the world. So it's a kind of postponement. This is the basic worldly attitude. So this should sound very familiar. Because it's never ending. This is the thing we want to begin to recognize about all our personal variations of a worldly attitude. It never ends. There's always an if only going on. If only this talk could get over and I could get home so I can get to bed and to get a good night's sleep and have a decent day tomorrow. If only I can make it to my retirement or to Friday you know, or to whatever. So this is the worldly attitude, and part of the worldly attitude is always believing the next if only. If only I stop for once and for all being caught in if onlys. Even that is just another if only. Because this is, uh, and the Buddha just names this so bluntly, so directly, you know, there's the desire to become somebody, and there's the desire to be done with stuff. Both are cravings. Both are causes for suffering. So to think like, oh, I just want to be done with it. I want to be done with planning mind. I want to be done with hope. I want to be done with fear. I want to be, just want to be done. That's more of the same. It's not that different than I want to live in a gated community with a quartz countertop and, you know, this kind of car in my garage and this sort of thing over there, and right? It's just another imagining that if I had all of that, then I'd be happy. If I were only done with all of life stuff, I'd be happy. So it doesn't matter what the particular variation is. You know, some of you, some of times we think, well, I've got the right if only. If only I could become a good Buddhist and really sit still. If only my body didn't ache so much when I was sitting and I could sit in a more relaxed way, then I'd have insight. Then my mind would get really peaceful. If only I had wisdom. If only I was a kinder human being. So even like relatively skillful if-onlys, right? Leave the mind hungry. 
So what's the alternative to this worldly existence? In a way, we, we have rights as a human being for just one desire. There's only really one desire that doesn't agitate the mind. And that's the desire to understand. It's not a desire to become something or someone. It's not a desire to be done. It's not a desire for some sense experience. It's just that more straightforward, authentic, really, desire to want to understand, want to be close, want to see clearly the way it is. And the reason that desire, I mean, when you just reflect on it and even activate that desire in your heart now, in your mind, you see there's something grounding about that desire to understand because we can actually understand the nature of the mind, the nature of this present moment when we're totally reacting or involved. We have to have somewhat of a hands-off to express that desire to understand. In a sense, it's not quite right to say it this way, in a sense we step back from the moment. But we're actually intimate. That's why it doesn't quite make sense to say step back. But it's hands-off. But when we open to the present moment because we're interested, because there's this desire to understand, And I, I call that flavorous uh, humility, right? Because if I were arrogantly certain what I want, what I need to be happy <clears throat> or to be fixed once and for all or to be there, wherever there is, once and for all, well, then I, I would have no need for humility. And so this sort of dawns on human beings that have are fortunate enough to be able to be reflective, not overwhelmed by the details of their life, not overwhelmed by sickness or poverty or oppression or whatever, you know, the terrible things that, are, that sort of fill people's lives so that they don't really have the space to be reflective. If we're fortunate enough to be reflective, it starts to dawn on the mind this fork in the road that exists in every moment between living in what I'm calling, the Buddha calls a worldly way, operating out of greed and aversion, operating out of that question, if only, or that perspective, if only, blank, then I'll be happy. Or this other way, the spiritual way, you could say, it's not a perfect word, but it works well enough, which is the desire to be intimate, the desire to understand this place of humility. Knowing that I don't know, I'm willing to let go of trying to be happy and replace that with this desire to just understand what's happening, what's being known. And basically understand the causes for stress and the causes for release in real time. It's like I'm willing to go back to kindergarten. I realize I haven't been paying attention. You know, I, this is where we, we wake up. How many times? I'm 60 now. How many times have I woken up in my life 
that sort of, you know, that feeling, I'm sure, I'm guessing most of you know, like, I clearly don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm living my life, but the choices I'm making, like, I did that? I said that? I made those choices? What was I thinking? What's going on? Where, you know, it's like where we realize, like, the conditioning of my mind, the habit energies of my mind, can't necessarily be trusted. Have you had those experiences? Yeah. And so that's the, that's, that's that recognition that there's a fork. We're beginning to discern that a lot of the conditioning, the habit energy, is we feel quite exposed or vulnerable if we don't have an if-only operating. And, and like I said a few minutes ago, when we don't have an if-only operating, we tend to have the negation of if-only, like I want to be done with it. But we don't realize that that's just another if-only. Like if only I could just be done being a human being. I mean, the nth degree of that is like committing suicide. Like I just want out. But that's still, it's like we're, we're thinking I can do something and then I'll be done with whatever I want to be done with. Or I can do something and then I can get whatever I want to get. But it's the same sort of thinking we know. And the more that dawns, the more we see clearly the dukkha, this is, we even have a word in Buddhism, right? The unsatisfactoriness of the if only, then I'll be happy perspective. Then we're willing to go this other way. And the and the experience of this other way is we don't know what it is, but we know it's not that. Initially, we don't know what this other way is, except that it's not doing that. We're abandoning the if only. And where do we land when we abandon the if only? I mean, you can just do it right now. Just abandon any if only. We just end up right here. Like, oh yeah, sitting feels like this. You know, the mood in the mind, the quality of the mind is like this now. It's a little scary being in the present moment. Yeah, but where am I going? Where does this lead? Right? So it really has that quality of not knowing. And let's call it a, give it a better word, humility. <laughs> right? It's like, oh yeah, knowing that we don't know. Or being open, being innocent. And really optimizing learning. We really start to learn. We don't learn when we're certain. We think we, think we know what we're doing. <clears throat> Except by failure, <laughs> one failure after another, eventually dawns in the mind and we realize it's not working. It's not working. So we come to this place between, and we'll learn either way. Like if we take the worldly path, we'll learn. Like, even if we get, and we do get just enough to keep feeding that if only, right? There is that sort of sense of being in control enough, just enough to think that we can one hot, uh, somehow once and for all get on top of this thing we call my life, solve the problem so that I'm, but you know, when we say it out loud, it doesn't make sense that like I'm really going to be happy but it does feel that way, like when we fix this or do this. Like even something silly, like just like if I 
could just get to bed tonight. Then. But with just a little wider perspective, we realize, yeah, but then it's Monday morning. And all that stuff awaits me. This world, this to-do list, this aging body, this whatever. All the uncertainty. And the reason we avoid so much this other approach, which initially looks like nothing we recognize, because we're not organizing this in terms of greed, something I want, aversion, something I want to get rid of. We're just opening. We're just acknowledging, oh yeah, this is being known. This is how it is now. This is being known. In that place, what do we see then? We start to see a lot of the movement of intention. Because we're not acting on the doing, the if only, then I'll be, then I'll get, then I'll get rid of, we see it precisely because we're not acting on it. We're not believing it. We're just recognizing that that impulse to do, to fix, to plan, to control, to compare to fantasize, to, you know, whatever that activity might be, to deny, to hide, to close down. So whatever it is, we're just feeling one impulse after another. That's, isn't that a lot of what we feel when we're sitting, doing our meditation practice? I mean, we might get periods of being in a nice, calm zone for a while, but a lot of what we're feeling is the impulse to move, the impulse to scratch, the impulse to complain. And of course, some percentage of these, in a so-called bad set, 90% of the impulses we actually act out. So then we're lost in the impulse for five minutes or whatever until we wake up and realize we've been lost in that reactive pattern when we start over. But when we're sort of more in the moment, it's just like one impulse to do, to think, to move after another. And we call that, right, be seeing that from the place of humility, like knowing that I don't know, except getting identified, acting out, hasn't worked in the past. So I'm taking a new approach, which is just to acknowledge that it's like this now, that this is being known. And then we see the rapidity of those impulses, those intentions, right? And we realize, oh, this is what the Buddha means by dukkha, right? Being the one who needs to do, needs to think, needs to fix, needs to get rid of, needs to become, needs to be done, needs to be liked, that the dependence is unsatisfactory. It's oppressive. But hating it, that's also oppressive. Acting it, believing it, that's oppressive. And there's this very subtle, initially very subtle middle ground, which is understanding what it is, is the only palatable thing. It's so interesting that 
the Buddha's path of awakening necessarily goes through this experience of dukkha, seeing the unsatisfactoriness of our own heart, our own mind, which of course is just the mirror of the dukkha, the oppressiveness of the world, the messiness of the world, each mirroring the other. I mean, where does the messiness of the world come from? Right? It's just the cumulative expression of all of our minds and hearts, right? Nature isn't mean-spirited. Nature is just nature. But the unnecessary suffering in our world is just expressing this not understanding our predicament as human beings. So we wake up, we see this fork in the road. I can, one more time, follow the if-only, then I'll be happy act out the doing, act out the intentions, or I can take this road of understanding, this humble willingness to be present, which means we're feeling all the movements in the heart to do, to fix, to become, to be somebody, to not become somebody. But we're just there, observing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, now it feels like this, now this is happening, now this is being known. And we may use an anchor like the breath, like we did tonight, or the whole body awareness, or hearing, or whatever you do. But ultimately, we're training, we're cultivating that stability of awareness that can just let it move, you know. So we're not even needing to distance ourselves or to focus on a particular meditative anchor. It may be there, the breath, or the whole body, to stabilize the present moment awareness so that we're not being confused by one impulse after another. And so the next, the first dawning of wisdom is like, this isn't working, and there's this other way, which I don't know what it is, but it's not that way, right? And there's, like, I don't recognize it, and it has a lot to do with just acknowledging, oh, it's like this. And the more we settle into that experience, we realize how unsatisfying it is, how unpleasant it is to feel the impulse to be identified, to want to personalize all of this intention, all of these impulses. Now, we're not demonizing. We're not saying the impulses are bad, and we're not saying they're me. We're just saying it's just that thing being known or that thing being felt, the impulse, right? Like, don't you notice that with, like, old pains or a difficult breakup? And sometimes when you're sitting, those memories will come to mind, and you feel the impulse to want to pick up that content and think about it. Or you want to, you know, get angry, spin about something going on in the politics of the day you know most of the time we just do it and then we're in that if only like if only I figure out how we get even with these people or how we win next time or whatever you know but when but when we've sort of st- put the stake in the ground no 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 I don't think that helps and we have enough clarity like for moments at a time we're remembering the if only doesn't work so we're in this place of present moment awareness then we get to see the impulses. 
precisely because we're not acting them out, we get to see them, we get to feel them, and we realize what they are. All that selfing is dukkha, is unsatisfactory, it's suffering, it's unpleasant. And we can start to understand. Then we really start kind of shifting another place like there's some sense that understanding the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of how the mind moves with craving, with fear, with anger, right? The movement of our mind, thinking mind, feeling heart, really driven by greed, anger, and delusion, we say in Buddhist words. And we really see that, and we see that that suffering, and we really begin to sense the possibility of freedom, which is not being confused by all this movement. So now the, this mode of being mindfully aware is starting to pay off, and it's starting to have in moments, for moments at a time, the flavor of freedom. Like being aware is liberating, Acting out is suffering. And there's all kinds of shadows in this place. Like the shadow of thinking, okay, I'm never going to act out another intention. I'm never going to do another thing in the world. I'm just going to sit. And we'll get that sometimes. But I bet uh, more than a few of you in the room have been in a sit where you've been in this place that I'm describing where you're feeling a, a lot of peace of not being confused by your intentions. They're there. You've got your normal, conditioned intentions to become somebody, to fix something, to judge something, to do something. But you're just letting them come and go, come and go, come and go, and you're feeling a lot of peace. And it's like the sit's coming to an end, or your knees are starting to hurt, or you've got to go do something, but you really don't want to lose. Because this is that shadow where we think that Whatever I got is going to go away as soon as I stop my set. Because we're associating the peace with the stillness of the body and the meditation, as opposed to an understanding that we can take on the, on the road with us through the day. And that really brings us to a different place in our practice, where we begin to see that whatever we get, in the stillness of a meditation, right? Because part of the equanimity we get initially is because we're literally not moving and we're not doing. But the mind starts to get curious about that equanimity, that non-reactivity, or you could say not acting on greed, anger, delusion as motivating forces to do things. Because aren't there ways of doing, getting involved, speaking, acting in the world that aren't driven by greed, anger, and delusion? What would that be? What would that look like? I mean, hasn't there been times when we've been quite active but felt very free in the doing of whatever we did? You know, it didn't feel oppressive when we we're playing with this person or helping this other person or hanging out with a friend. Right? Not all activity is oppressive. Not all. But when the mind is expecting something from it, then 
in a way it gets ruined. So this is what we're starting. This is why we need to take the practice back into the world. Right? We set, but the practice really begins in the transition. Whatever peace, whatever equanimity, whatever sort of confidence in this other mode where we're being intimate but not reactive, not believing the impulses of greed, anger, and delusion. But then the sit ends, so now we need to begin to move, but we still have some momentum of not believing greed, anger, and delusion. But what's going to get me to move my body or open my eyes or go pee or get to work or make breakfast or whatever is next for us? And how can it's, you know, I can, in some ways, when we talk about that liberated way of being, that free way of being, we say, well, it's just let nature be nature, right? The nature of activity. But the Buddha spells it out in a more specific way. I mean, and this is just something, a map, really, for us to check out. When we're observing the mind, he says that when you see your mind doing, operating out of these three qualities, greediness, hate, aversion, fear, and delusion, distraction, disconnection, right? You'll notice there's suffering, there's tension. The system of the mind and body is contracted. And when you see the mind operating out of generosity or letting go, renunciation is the word he uses, but it's like the non-stinginess of the mind, not thinking that holding, owning, leads anywhere. So generosity, kindness, and compassion, when you see that not as an imitation, like trying to be kind or trying to be compassionate or trying to be generous, but when it, that's a natural impulse, intention, when it's motivated by that understanding of letting go, non-stinginess, or an inner sense of abundance. You know, there's the word renunciation, it gets translated as renunciation, it sort of captures it, but in uh, the Eastern sense, renunciation is considered a real joy. But for us, when we hear the word renunciation, we think of sacrifice and like, Gotta give, I gotta let go. I don't I don't wanna let go, but I gotta let go. <clears throat> but here it's more like what a joy it is. It's like a real sense of lightness. So even if we have a lot, you know, we don't we, we don't imagine that they're ours. Like if you go to your closet and you see you've got six nice pair of pants, you know, and they might be really nice pair of pants, but you don't, the mind isn't dependent. It's like if somebody came and needed them, you'd give them. You know, maybe you'd buy more too. But the point is we're not holding, we're not dependent. We're not imagining things are going to last. You go home, you see your partner, but you don't imagine that that's forever because it's not, right? Partners aren't forever. I mean, even if you live to the end of your life, in your coupledom, one of you is going to die, and then the other one will die. So things end. Houses fall apart. So 
Part of renunciation is like really integrating the truth of impermanence, living with the truth of impermanence, so that it's not... Who was it? One of the great teachers, recent teachers, said uh, uh, that understanding impermanence isn't... isn't a, it's really understanding that everything goes away. It's not like, you know, somehow taking something away from experience, but just realizing the reality of experience, that things come and then they go. So that's that generosity. And then kindness is just realizing like that very natural impulse to not want to suffer. And nobody wants to suffer. And compassion is that impulse, well, I don't want to do anything that contributes. I want to do things that alleviate my and other suffering. So this is... This is where we, like when we take our practice into the world, we're really learning to act out of those three intentions, like to find them. And we're feeding on that, the joy, the lightness, and the rightness of living in that way. So when we use our anchor, you know, I've been talking about the anchor like the breath or the body, and and just more generally the whole commitment to sitting every day or most days, even if it's just five minutes, and then let your own appreciation of the practice lead you to sit more and more, and then eventually go on some retreats if you can swing them in your life. Because it really, I mean, as a ritual of sitting down, it really makes this fork of the road so much more apparent. The endless chasing of, if only, then I'll be happy, to, I don't know what the heck's going on. I'm going to become a student, a humble student. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. And in that this is being known, that moment-to-moment awareness, we've, we begin to notice the difference between intentions that are coming out of greed, anger, and delusion, and intentions that are coming out of renunciation or generosity, kindness, and compassion. They feel differently. They look differently. And then that's where we really learn. Like even in terms of what we're paying attention to, like when you come back to your meditation anchor, you can do this out of fear. Like, I'm afraid if I go down that road, you know, I'll get swallowed up, so I'm going to hold tight to my meditation object. But that doesn't necessarily work very well. But you could do the same thing from the place of compassion. Oh, honey, let's just stay close to the breath. You know, you need to settle. Just notice the breath from the beginning to end. Notice the breath from the beginning to end. Right? That could be done. Couldn't that be done from a real trustworthy place of compassion and generosity like the Buddha, all the people who have done this practice before us, they're offering me this technique for me to check out. It's like a gift, these teachings, right? Let me check it out. Let's see right here, right now, if it helps. Let me take it up with some sincerity and see if it helps. Just to put down the world and just be with the body, just be with the breath coming in, just be with the body and the breath going out, stabilize the awareness. With that stability of awareness, 
have more clarity about the different impulses and tensions that are arising. Oh, that feels like greed. That feels like aversion. That feels like kindness. Right? And even because, you know, even though we're sitting still, we're quite active as a human being. It's just that we're not moving the body much. So we're still learning the difference between acting out of greed, acting out of hate, acting out of delusion, and acting out of letting go or renunciation, acting out of kindness and compassion. And then we take it on the road when this sits over, okay? And it's okay if we make mistakes and act out of greed, anger, and delusion because it's a very powerful teacher. Oh, yeah, here I go again. Acting out greed feels like this. I'm really tight. I'm all entangled, right? This isn't helping. Oh, here I am acting out a very simple, authentic, ordinary quality of kindness. This feels good. This doesn't feel oppressive. This isn't exhausting the mind. Oh, maybe this is the way. Right? This is how we live our days. This is like what a Buddhist practitioner does all day long. They, they look exactly like every other human being, except they've got some, at least some, momentum right, in the mind of this being at the crossroads where they're noticing the greed, anger, delusion dominating the mind versus the renunciation, kindness, and compassion dominating the mind. And when the mind's over here, wisdom doesn't judge. Wisdom just connects the dots. Oh, yeah, that leads to suffering. And it feels like this. And when the mind notice, when wisdom notices the mind's over here, wisdom goes, oh, that leads to release. Release feels like this. Release is being known. Ease is being known. Peace is being known. It's really that simple. Because if I learn something and then I get into the if only, if only I don't act out greed, anger, and delusion, then I'll be happy. Well, that's greed, right? I'm right back in the entanglement. So we've got to keep ourselves in this middle place. That's why the Buddha calls this the middle way. It's not about controlling or getting rid of. It's about understanding. So when greed, anger, and delusion is operating, our practice is to know greed, anger, and delusion, whatever it is, is operating in the mind. And it feels like this. This is what's getting set in motion. This is how it is. It's not something we think. It's something that wisdom, awareness sees directly. Oh, yeah, this is what's happening in the body and mind. And when other wholesome qualities are operating in the mind, wisdom sees that and sees where that leads. So we're taking the role of, like this is what we often define the Buddha, right? The Buddha isn't somebody, like in terms of our practice, the Buddha doesn't refer to somebody who lived 25, 2600 years ago. The Buddha means that wakeful wisdom that operates in our mind. The one who knows the difference between unwholesome intentions and wholesome intentions. That's, we're cultivating that stability of awareness that can distinguish, oh yeah, when I see greediness operating, it's initially tight and it leads to more tightness, right? Clearly we've had moments where we've seen that, like bright and clear, oh yeah, that leads to hell. And other times we say, oh yeah, this is the way. Whatever way the mind is relating, showing up in this moment, it feels good, it feels trustworthy. But we don't take the time to really 
sink in. We don't have that stability that's not trying to find and hold and own the way, but just connect the dots. And that's the difference. And see, we can turn Buddhism into something we're attached to, and then we'll suffer. I mean, there's nothing more insufferable than somebody who's attached to Buddhism. I mean, it's such a, an affront to the way the Buddha was teaching. Of course, he didn't call it Buddhism, right? He just talked about it as human common sense, right? Like the word that's used, as some of you know, dharma. But that was a common word at the time of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't come up with the word dharma, or dhamma is a <clears throat> equivalent to dharma. It just means the way it is, common sense. Like, this is just how it is. That's what the Buddha taught. He taught dharma, the way it is. Right? Like, there are some qualities of mind that lead to suffering, and there are some qualities of mind that are completely trustworthy. And it doesn't really change, like, whether we get sick with cancer or whether we don't, or whether we have a lot of affluence or we don't. Or it just changes how we relate to the conditions of our lives. And this is what's so liberating and why the Buddha refers to it as uh, unconditioned happiness. Because what the Buddha discovered and what we are on our way to discovering is it's more important how the mind is relating to conditions than the conditions themselves. And we know this. We see people who are beautiful and wealthy and whatever who are just really miserable. And we see people who don't have much of anything going what we would tend to call good fortune, and yet they can be very free. Now, obviously, if somebody asks me, well, do you want ease in your body or do you want torturous disease? I'll say, I prefer ease in my body. But I'm not counting on that to take care of me. Like, if only I have ease in my body, then I'll be happy. Because there's a lot of times my body feels good, right? And I can be really unhappy. And there are a lot of times when I have pain in my body and I can be really happy. And I pay attention to those moments. And I don't put all my eggs in that basket of like, if only I have a comfortable body, then I'm going to be happy. Because it hasn't worked. But what has worked, it's gradual, you know, over the 36, 7 years of my practice, is cultivating this way, this wisdom. And then what comes out of this wisdom is operating gradually, slowly, more and more with letting go, renunciation, kindness, and compassion, and less and less, gradually, slowly, with greed, anger, and delusion. And when I still act with greed, anger, and delusion in moments, I take it as a teacher, oh yeah, that's right, this doesn't help. This doesn't work. This does lead to suffering. Yeah, good to see that again. And I'm grateful, even for those painful teachers. Okay. One less time I have to see it. You know, I'm going to really let the data land in the heart so it ha- makes its impression. I don't want to miss that instruction from my teacher. Like, this is the road to hell. This is the road to peace. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from two or three of you your own reflections on your practice. Yes, yeah, start us off, Kathy. I'm Kathy. Um, With regard to the if-onlys, in my experience, very few of those thoughts are related to future. If only I have this. Most of them are past. 
if only I had done this differently, if only I had waited, I hadn't waited, and I'm guessing I'm probably not the only one experiencing that. Yeah, I should have been better because I'm more the future type, but it's really temperamental, and some of us are more the past type, if only I hadn't. So I'm so glad you made that, that point because there's, there's really an infinite way that that if only can express in humans. So your if onlys may not look like anybody else's, but you'll see the pattern. Is it the same kind of greed as if only I had a new house, if only I had a new partner? Yeah, sure, because it's a rejection of here and now, isn't it? And that's what distinguishes, that's this side of the equation. The worldly side is instead of being intimate with the present moment, we're imagining a past or a future right? that will fix it, that will make it better. Yeah, thanks, Kathy that up. Yeah, what else comes to mind? Thoughts, reflections from your practice or questions that come to mind? Hi, my name is Wayne. Um, how do you know if something is greed, anger, or delusion? How do you know it's kindness? Because I can justify, I can justify any, anything as being one as being kind but uh, what you know, the map. This is why the map is useful, but it doesn't substitute for direct experimentation and observation. It's actually all of the spiritual maps, like that, the teachings you might get from the Buddha and other teachers that have been at the practice for a while. They're really they're not initially that helpful, except to kind of give us some faith to, to experiment or to pay attention. But then after a lot of present moment practice, then we realize that our direct collecting of data from our own experience looks a lot like a map that the Buddha talked about. And then that brings up a lot of confidence, like, oh, what he understood about his mind is what I've understood about my mind. Well, maybe some of these other things he said also will map onto my experience. So that initial map of like uh, greed, anger, and delusion on the unskillful side and letting go, kindness and compassion on the skillful side, it's more like the direct experiencing of the heart getting entangled and tight and hurting, the squeeze of the heart. So then you notice, oh my God, my heart's entangled, it's, sque- it's squeezed, it hurts, I'm suffering. And that is sort of like a uh, wake up. And then the mind, or wisdom awareness sort of kicks in. You start to pay attention with mindfulness, what's happening, what's moving. Oh, I wonder if this is kindness. No, it's not kindness. Is it aversion? Oh yeah, it's aversion. You know, it's fear. Because there's like, there's so many different flavors of aversion. Fear, hate, boredom, irritation, impatience, right? So there are a lot of different flavors. But the relevant thing is the squeeze in the heart. So not only is like right now, right here and now the heart tight, but there's also some intuition of what is getting set in motion. And not just in your own mind. You, you might notice that people around you are also being bothered or suffering because of how you're showing up in the moment. So it's not just the disturbance in our own heart. 
But that's the initial thing, is we're getting a sense of what's supporting the squeeze in the heart, the literal, direct, immediate constriction in the body-mind. What we call suffering. This is the dukkha. This is the sort of visceral expression of dukkha or suffering. It's like, oh yeah, my heart hurts. It's heavy. It feels burdened. Right? And then the others are any quality, any mind, shape of the mind, quality of the mind, intention of the mind that has the flavor of being unburdened, not heavy, not constricted, light, free, that we call skillful, you know. And the Buddha says, and it's for us to check out, like, you'll see the different flavors of that. Basically, the flavor of letting go, non-attachment, and kindness and compassion. And it kind of makes intellectual sense, you know, like when we think of all the saints, regardless of the tradition, you know, they weren't attached and they seem to have a lot of kindness and compassion. I mean, that's, those are the stories we tell about saints, people who aren't holding, aren't identified. They're generous, and they're kind, and they care. Now, it's interesting, like, because I often make this joke, you know, if I told you there was a million dollars, everybody, you know, hidden in the building, everybody would spend some time looking, probably, Right? But if the Buddha says, you know what, you can actually be happy no matter the particular circumstances or conditions of your life, it's just a matter of realizing the difference between the unskillful intentions and the skillful intentions. And the more you pay attention, you'll get it. And then you can be really happy no matter what happens. But either we don't believe the Buddha, right, or we haven't heard that, or we have some story, yeah, other people maybe it works for, but not me. You know? Or, or we think, I'll get to that later. You know? But first I need to build the porch in my house, or you know, I want to do some traveling first, and then I'll get to that unconditioned happiness. But you know, so this is the interesting thing about humans, is that we're so busy with the if-onlys, that we've lost our sense, right? And uh, we're pursuing happiness. There was that old country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. you remember that song? And uh, I should ask you, Kathy, to sing it. (laughs) But uh, yeah, because that's what we do. And every once in a while, there's enough suffering that we wake up and we look around and go, is there another way? And in those moments, if we happen to bump into some wise teachings like from the Buddha, we might actually pursue this other way and really learn the difference between what leads to constriction and what leads to release. And then live, have enough integrity to live in accordance to what the mind is learning. Because that's another step. It's like, because a lot of us have some intuition, but do we have enough kind of integrity, like no matter what, I'm going to live in alignment with what my life has taught me. I mean, why wouldn't we do that? But it's interesting, when I go home tonight, I won't make that my top priority, probably. 
my top priority might be like, is there an interesting snack to eat? I mean, it's not that eating a snack is bad or, you know, interesting thing on the internet to look at. But it's just this postponement practice, like do whatever you're going to do, but let's be cultivating unconditional happiness. Why wouldn't we want to do that? No matter what we're doing, looking for a snack, crawling into bed, even arguing with our partner. Is this like, is this conducive to unconditional happiness or not? How to turn this into support for unconditional happiness? Mm-hmm. And then we'll have to end here. What would you say is the difference between kindness and compassion? The kindness is more the, the initial sense about suffering, how suffering operates in our own heart and mind. And, uh, and so then our response, like even paying attention, is an act of kindness because we want to address suffering. So kindness initially arises with the understanding there is dukkha, there is this unsatisfactoriness, and we want to take care of that. We want to address it. And then compassion, this is, I mean, a particular Buddhist way of talking, distinguishing the two, is when we realize how easily our actions can cause others to suffer, right? Where it's really this moral sense like, I do not want to act in the world in a way that contributes to suffering. And I don't even know all the subtle and not so subtle ways I might be contributing to cycles of suffering, right? Like through how we consume things or even like words we use. It's just so easy. It's like I often talk about walking in the woods and then realizing, you know, oh, there are a lot of creatures on the ground. And that really changes how we walk in the woods, you know, like where we walk and where we put our foot down. And knowing we can't avoid it, right? You can't avoid causing harm, but does that mean we shouldn't care about causing harm? So this is this kind of broadening of that sensitivity. Like we live in this world where life eats life and I care about not harming. It's almost like a koan. Like how to have to shop for food and really care about not contributing to suffering. Because it seems so much easier to think, I can't think about that. I'm just going to get what I need or what I want. But maybe we can do both, or shop for clothes, or like the kind of jobs we have. Oh, no, I can't think about what my corporation does because I need this job. See, there's no easy answer for the compassion. It's really like willing to be in the thicket, the confusing thicket, like I'm in a world where life eats life, and I don't want to contribute to harming. But the thing is, we're not in this uh, place. Right? We're not looking for like the perfect way, because that's if only I figure this out, then I'll be happy. We're like we're we're kind of coming alive in the complexity, because the desire not to contribute to harm, to harm others, is itself beautiful. So we're really coming alive in, like figuring out how we're going to feed ourselves or how we're going to clothe ourselves or what activist activities we're going to do or not do. 
we don't see it as a burden. If we see it as a burden, we're causing suffering. How can compassion be an enlivening activity? Whether you're just taking care of a sick cat or a dying parent or your own fragile body or whatever it might be or something bigger. So kindness is this first sort of impulse to pay attention and to take responsibility for suffering, like to not be helpless or not distract yourself. No, no. I'm going to, that kind of integrity, I'm going to really learn what there is to learn here because I care. And compassion is taking that like, okay, now that I'm, you know, kind of have a sense of how to take care of myself, now I'm going to own this impossible task of taking care of everybody, including myself. And it's totally impossible. No one figures this out. There's no way to be a human being and not cause harm, right? But it's really beautiful to care about that and to make that a priority, right? It, it brings us alive. What is deadening is to think it doesn't matter because then we can justify anything, really. And a lot of people do. I mean, this is what we see happening in the world. And we need to leave it here. Thanks for the important comment. You want to pass the microphone back to Jean? Jean has a couple of announcements for us, but before that, let's just take just a few seconds because we're a few minutes over and just let go of the words. It's really okay to let go of the words. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.